This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted and excited to have Phoebe Lapine, who is a food and health writer, gluten-free chef, wellness personality, culinary instructor, award-winning blogger, recipe developer, Hashimoto's advocate, podcast host, or prior podcast host, (laughs) and speaker born and raised in New York City, where she continues to live and eat. Welcome, Phoebe. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when I put out on social media, the people I was connecting with and topics, SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was huge. I mean, Mm -hmm. the DMs, I mean, my team was laughing, like trying to take all the questions down. And so clearly people want to learn more about SIBO. And I was mentioning before we even started recording that, you know, my traditional allopathic background SIBO wasn't around 20 years ago. And it was only when I kind of dove into the functional pool that I got exposure to it. And and I think there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of misunderstandings. I like to explain to people that it's a lot of nuances and I'm sure Mm. obviously this is your area of expertise, but one statistic that I read when I was kind of prepping for today, which I thought was really interesting is that 60% of IBS is caused by SIBO. And I, all I could think of was the amount of people that I've been exposed to over the years that have IBS, whether mm-hmm. it's diarrhea, constipation, and we're thinking, oh, it's just irritable bowel. And it could be something much deeper than that. Totally. I mean, I'm sure as a practitioner, you can think back to that entire group of people that just mm-hmm. had that wastebasket diagnosis with no actual <laughs> concrete path forward for treatment. So in that sense, even though SIBO is an annoying condition with a lot of nuances, it at least gives you some more direction than just the IBS diagnosis. Yeah. So how did you get so interested? And I'm sure it, our own health journey is always a great place to start. How did you get so interested and passionate about talking about SIBO, learning about SIBO, connecting with with people about SIBO? How did that process start for you? Yeah. So it's almost always based on my own health journey. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. I joke that I'm kind of in the business of writing books that I wish I had had when I was going through a health struggle. My last book was about Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which I dealt with 12 years ago and just wasn't that much out there at the time. And, you know, fast forward, gosh, until three years ago, four years ago, when I got the SIBO diagnosis, it was the same thing. And I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole online and found, you know, whatever information I could. And luckily there are some incredible free resources online, but, you know, again, getting back to those nuances, like there seemed to be so many contradictions. There seemed to be so many caveats for what we did know. And then just generally, since it is such a new area of research, there's just a lot of question marks. And so that's why I decided to start my podcast, which is also called SIBO Made Simple, because, you know, so many practitioners who are specialized in this have made discoveries clinically that, you know, the research just hasn't caught up with yet. And also, you know, I, I have a blog and I'm always writing about, you know, my health mm-hmm. <laughs> issues du jour. And when I wrote about SIBO kind of similar to, you know, what happened when you opened that can of worms, I just got this incredible outpouring of questions and comments and commiseration. And that always to me is like, oh, well, you know, people need these resources mm-hmm. and I'm kind of, you know, 
a crazy researcher obsessive. So I just, yeah, decided to keep on going. <laughs> yeah, no. And I think there are a lot of people that are suffering. I think that's really what it comes down to yeah. when you scratch the surface and you get a lot of interest in a topic in a subject in a post, I always tell my team, like if things go like wildfire on a particular stop topic, yeah. then it's clearly some, that's a huge pain point for women and men as well. I would imagine there's probably some gender nuances to this as well. So let's kind of unpack what SIBO actually is so that listeners can fully appreciate and understand what this encompasses. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, it stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I think kind of where we need to start is that a lot of people who are just hearing about gut health and passing kind of in the wellness zeitgeist, you know, maybe get a watered down version of what that actually means. And I think there are a lot of people out there who don't really realize that when people talk about our gut microbiome, about our quote unquote, good gut bacteria, we're primarily talking about the large intestine. That is where bacteria has a ton of different roles, but primarily with regards to digestion, it has a role in helping you break down these fibers that we ourselves do not digest. But our small intestine is where we digest our food, where we break it down into essential nutrients, absorb those nutrients into our bloodstream and, you know, truly reap the benefits of what we're putting into our body. So while kind of every, you know, organ and area of our digestive system has its own microbiome, its own ecosystem. The small intestine doesn't have a huge role for bacteria. And in fact, when there are large numbers present, when there are not supposed to be, it can cause a lot of harm. And that's kind of what we see with SIBO and the primary symptoms, you know, kind of dovetail with IBS. It's the bloating, it's, you know, the abdominal cramping, it's diarrhea, constipation, or a mixture of the two. But then there's this whole other long list of other symptoms that are a result of kind of the damage that the bacteria themselves cause. So when bacteria, you know, eat food, they release gas and that gas can be really disturbing to your gut environment. The bacteria themselves can often eat through the mucus layer in your intestinal wall and cause, you know, your immune system to get involved. Once that kind of fog of war begins and there's a lot of, you know, acute inflammation in that area, leaky gut or intestinal permeability kind of becomes a foregone conclusion. And that is when a lot of these kind of autoimmune spectrum symptoms can creep in. So a lot of people with SIBO have food sensitivities. And then depending on kind of how you're inflammatory reactions manifest, you know, it could be joint pain, it could be skin rashes, it could be I don't know, like so many different things. It could be dizziness. It could be mood related. It could be anxiety or depression. Depending on what kind of critters are overgrowing, it can be weight loss or weight gain. And then, you know, of course, nutrient deficiencies, since again, you know, all of that dysfunction can cause issues with us actually, again, reaping the rewards of the meal because there are other mouths at play. There's so much to it. And, and I think that, you know, you said it best that SIBO is a sign of an imbalance, not a disease. And that's an important distinction. Like we don't develop SIBO overnight. Mm. And it's been my clinical experience that it seems to be someone's been dealing with a lot of things for a while, and then yes. they just don't seem to get better. And that's when, you know, it's like, cause anyone tested you for SIBO and then all of a sudden, voila, they've got SIBO. So one of the things I found really interesting is when we're looking at like etiologies or reasons why people will develop SIBO, I love that you touched on the MMC. So for listeners, when we're talking about reasons why people can be prone or develop 
SIBO. Some of it can just be from slowed motility in the gut. And this is part of the reason why I like fasting so much is people are not eating frequently, mm. but the actual process of the migrating motor complex, which, you know, this is kind of a nerdy term, but I promise like once we talk about it, everyone that's listening will go, Oh, this makes sense. This is why snacking and mini meals are really detrimental to our health. So let's talk about the stagnation piece. Like when, you know, the gut is not moving things along in a proper fashion, how that can make us prone to developing SIBO. Absolutely. So yes, there are a lot of nerdy terms that come into play with SIBO. <laughs> Even researching my last book, I did a ton of research on gut health. Mm -hmm. I did not come across anything about the migrating motor complex, mm -hmm. which was crazy. So this mechanism is fueled by your nerve cells and it is kind of the street sweeper wave that makes sure that there's no debris, bacteria, what have you, anything lingering crumbs, if you will, lingering in your very long and winding small intestine. And that's something to keep in mind too, is that your small intestine has a greater surface area than a football field. It is not aptly named, even though it's skinny, it is, you know, vast in its way, which is why it's so important to have this mechanism to not only, you know, there's kind of peristalsis, which is like the muscular movement of food through your digestive canal. But then this is literally what cleans up after the meal, the dishwasher setting. And if you don't have that, you can just think about all the little nooks and crannies where things can, you know, get missed and start to accumulate. And if you have other kind of overlapping issues, mainly that bacteria naturally coming in through your nose and mouth don't get killed, which is kind of a whole other bucket of SIBO risk factors and root causes, in which case you do have, you know, yeast or fungi or bacteria coming into the plant. And then thanks to some of that stagnation staying for a while, when you also have food accumulating too, you create kind of a ripe environment for an opportunist to, you know, just want to pull off the highway and stay a while. So that's kind of what happens with the migrating motor complex piece. And there are a ton of different diseases and overlapping conditions that can kind of lead to dysfunction with the migrating motor complex. But I do think that the lifestyle ones are incredibly interesting and important for people at home who have SIBO and like you mentioned, snacking. So the most important thing to know about the migrating motor complex is that it only kicks in during a fasting state of 90 minutes or more. So that means if you're eating something that's super healthy, you know, an almond, a carrot stick, doesn't matter what it is, but if you're putting food in your mouth all the time, you are disrupting that essential function. And if you think back to, you know, the way that humans, you know, survived in the bush, you know, we didn't have readily available, like hundred calorie snack packs around, to keep us satiated. We we're not used to, you know, eating around the clock. We were probably weren't even used to eating, you know, three well-balanced meals a day. But if you think about today's lifestyle habits, the eating three balanced meals a day and at least spacing things out, you know, by three, four, five hours is going to give you a big leg up when it comes to SIBO. And, you know, some people have other issues like Hashimoto's is actually an interesting example that kind of cause stagnation across the board that just, you know, you probably know if you're out there, if you have kind of a sluggish system. And if you are one of those people, you want to think about, you know, that meal spacing tactic. I'm not a huge like intermittent fasting proponent, though. I know a lot of people with SIBO find it helpful. It's to me, it's just that meal spacing, making sure that you give yourself downtime between meals to reset. And also just so people know your migrating motor complex doesn't work overnight 
night really either. Your digestive system, you know, again, per the way our bodies were designed to function, goes into hibernation mode so that your other organs, mainly your liver, can do other essential chores like clean your blood. Um, so it's not like that huge fasting window overnight is going to allow you to catch up. I think that's a really important distinction and really aligns itself. And obviously a lot of my listeners do intermittent fast, but it also reinforces why we really should space out irrespective of whether or not we do fast. If you eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, great, but you want to have four or five hours between your meals, allow yourself to get hungry, be ready to eat. And it's important that we are having episodes of not eating during the day, as you mentioned, because we want to optimize digestion. And at nighttime, our body is focusing on other things. What I also found really interesting is that if you've had certain types of surgery, so you can get these structural reasons why you can develop SIBO. I, with great interest, read this because <laughs> I had two C-sections, which I wasn't worried about, but I did two years ago, get very sick, almost died and had a 13 day hospitalization and then had to go back six weeks later to have my appendix out. And my surgeon yeah. did it laparoscopically and showed me all the adhesions that had developed just in like the six weeks since I had been hospitalized and she clipped all of them, but it had me thinking that there's a lot of reasons. And in my past ER, you know, nurse days, I saw tons of older, like people, 70, 80, 90 years old that would come in with adhesions. They would come in with strictures. They would come in with all mm-hmm. sorts of, you know, anatomical things that were going on with the digestive system that were creating surgical emergencies or making them mm-hmm. quite sick. And so if anyone's listening and has had any of the above, it could be a cholecystectomy or your gallbladder out, could be laparoscopic surgery to address reproductive organ issues. Just recognizing that each time someone goes into your intra-abdominal yeah. cavity, there's an opportunity to develop adhesions. And it's interesting on a secondary note, the last time I had a conversation with my OBGYN and I was just out of curiosity asking about this and she said, well, I think we've done such a better job now that, you know, we're not letting people labor for hours and hours and hours. I worry most about patients, irrespective of why they're coming in. If they've been having pain for a long period of time, lots of fevers, they've got Mm -hmm. an uncontrolled infection. They're going to be set up for more adhesions than the average person. Mm -hmm. Now, with that being said, I developed a lot of adhesions just in a six weeks period of time. So just imagine what it could be like for, you know, the average person who's out there doesn't need to be hospitalized. Do you see quite a bit of, you know, in your experience when you were, you know, your podcast was on, were a lot of the physicians that were coming on to speak with you talking a lot about the structural component? Absolutely. So there's been research on that and I'm not going to be able to pull the statistic off the top of my head, but you know, there shows there's a big correlation between any Mm -hmm. type of abdominal surgery, laparoscopic or otherwise, and developing SIBO down the line. And it is because of these adhesions, like you said, you know, when anyone, you know, goes in (laughs) to that area, even if there's only a small scar on the outside, on the inside, our fascia, our tissue Mm -hmm. may have formed in a way that's not allowing our organs to move as freely as they once did. And it can be, you know, something that's incredibly minor. I kind of, again, going back to how long and winding the road of our small intestine is, I liken it to, you know, putting some sort of pressure that would make a four lane highway into a two lane highway, maybe on its own, that's not going to be that big of a deal for you. It does not 
guarantee SIBO. If you've had an abdominal surgery and you're worried about this, like it doesn't mean you're going to get SIBO. Mm -hmm. But then again, you layer on some of these other risk factors or root causes, the motility, of course, being one of them. If you add that slowing, that stagnation on top of the bottleneck, or Mm -hmm. again, you have low stomach acid, you are immunocompromised, you don't have kind of these defense mechanisms that your body naturally was designed to have in order to fight bacteria coming in through the nose and mouth, then yeah, again, that can create a breeding ground or an opportunity at least for bacteria to overgrow where it's not meant to be. And I think it's kind of the area that people are less likely to investigate. Like the surgeries are something that can easily come to mind if you're looking Mm -hmm. through a checklist, but there are a lot of things that are a little bit more insidious, like any sort of fall when you were younger, falling off the monkey bars, a fender bender, just our brain gut connection is very profound on the one hand, but then also, you know, structurally the way that our body heals, even if it's again, not something invasive, but just alignment wise that can really have an impact on our digestive system's ability to get the job done. So I personally think that body work that's really targeted is very important as part of the SIBO healing process, even if you think to yourself, oh no, you know, the structural stuff doesn't apply to me because I didn't think it applied to me at all. And then of course I was like, oh, well, yeah, I grew up horseback riding and have fallen off a horse, like, you know, dozens upon dozens of times. I had a terrible tailbone injury at one point that was like really causing me a lot of discomfort. Like, hmm, does that have anything to do with my digestive issues? Maybe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, it's really fascinating. And and another point that you brought up in your book was the impact of like food poisoning and Lyme disease and, you know, preceding my 13 day hospitalization in 2018, we were in Morocco and I got the worst food poisoning I've ever had in my entire life. Like I was so sick. I remember, well, my husband was asleep the entire time I was sick. I remember thinking like, I don't want to be in a foreign country and have to seek medical care. That would not be ideal. And I, you know, I went about the rest of my trip into another country and got over it. And then four months after that got food poisoning when I was in Toronto and you know, my functional medicine provider and I believe strongly that it probably set up, you know, some type of opportunistic opportunity to end up developing a septic appendix, which is what ended up happening to me. And that's why I got so sick. But I think for anyone that's listening, we think of food poisoning as being really benign Yeah, and it really can be, it might just be benign self-limiting, meaning your symptoms go away and you go on and you do fine. But again, this is that nuance, that kind of insidious nature, as you kind of alluded to that, you know, these things that seem so innocuous really may not be. Yeah. And that's too funny because I don't think I talked about it in the SIBO Made Simple book, but my food poisoning in Morocco was also (laughs) set the stage for, I think- my Hashimoto's, I was diagnosed six months after I got back and I had had a stomach of steel and I loved traveling. And it was, it happened on day two of the trip. And same as you, I kind of was over it by the end and went to another country, but then I had, you know, some flare ups every now and then, but, you know, regardless, it was just like, my stomach was never the same again. And yeah, I would think it definitely lay the groundwork, whether or not it was a parasite or whatnot, but for some sort of gut issue that preceded an autoimmune disease and SIBO came many years later, I think more tied to the Hashimoto's than anything, but you know, all of these things in your personal health history do add up over time. And, you know, 
tell a story in some way, in some nerdy, obscure way in terms of your balance of hormones, in terms of various nutrient deficiencies. And yeah, so going back to food poisoning and SIBO, which I think is fascinating, it has a direct correlation with the migrating motor complex. So it actually falls under that bucket of migrating motor complex stagnation issues. And what's interesting is, you know, as you said, sometimes it's just this acute experience and you're completely fine afterwards. Unlike me, you just, you never notice anything going forward. And so you forget about it. You're just like, oh yeah, that was like 24 hours of misery and then I'm done. But for a certain percentage of people who get food poisoning, there's kind of this acute autoimmune reaction that causes your immune system to accidentally attack the nerve cells of your migrating motor complex. It's kind of a case of molecular mimicry, as they say. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, again, you don't develop SIBO overnight. I'm so glad you pointed that out to people. In the days, weeks, months that follow with that stagnation could create, again, the perfect Mm -hmm. environment for SIBO. And so it doesn't necessarily have to do with that acute case of food poisoning, but in the aftermath, you know, your system slowed down and, something could develop off the back of that. And a lot of people don't even remember or think because it's months down the line that they start to notice, you know, the IBS symptoms creeping back in. Mm -hmm. And they're of course less dramatic often than, Mm -hmm. you know, what happened during that food poisoning episode that people don't necessarily connect the dots. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think the joke was when I got to Spain after being in Morocco, Everyone in That's Spain where said, I went to. Oh, how funny. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in Spain was like, oh, everyone gets food poisoning in Morocco. It was just like everyone that just happens to everyone. You know, you're not special. And I said, my husband didn't have any problems. We ate the same food, yeah. but I'm the one that got sick. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I see so many people with mold is the impact of mold on SIBO. And so for listeners that are listening, that are getting, you know, they're sweating or they're getting concerned or they're worried, we're going to talk about how to test for SIBO. So don't stress. <laughs> Did you know that our natural ability to digest food declines with age? This has a great deal to do with our body producing fewer enzymes, which are responsible for digesting food. Fewer enzymes oftentimes means more difficulty digesting food as well as bloating and gas. And if you're over the age of 35, like so many of my listeners, your enzyme levels have already begun to decline. That's why I'm a huge fan of enzyme supplementation. And the best digestive enzyme I have ever found comes from my friends at BioOptimizers called Masszymes. Masszymes is the most complete, most potent digestive enzyme I've ever seen or experienced with over 102% more protease than the nearest competitor and 300 to 500% more per serving than most popular brands. I take Masszymes with my largest meal of the day, sometimes two, generally three, and it's made a big difference in my digestion. What makes this digestive enzyme most helpful is that it is particularly beneficial in helping to break down protein, not properly breaking down your protein and digesting it creates a variety of problems from bloating to inflammation and beyond. Masszymes not only contains more protease, it contains 13 additional enzymes, including lipase for fat digestion, which work at every pH level from two to 12. In other words, at every stage of digestion, All of this makes Masszymes an ideal complement to any muscle building or fat loss diet. And you can try it risk-free. Their 365-day full money-back guarantee is the gold standard in the industry. And if you don't feel how Masszymes helps you upgrade your digestion and power through your food, their support team will give you a no-questions-asked refund. 
Go to biooptimizers.com and use code Cynthia10 to get 10% off your first purchase. That's www.bioptimizers.com slash Cynthia and use code Cynthia10 to get 10% off. One of my favorite ways to take care of my health is with appropriate electrolyte replacement. And my favorite brand is Element. We know that proper hydration leads to better sleep, focus, energy, and more. And we know that hydration isn't just about drinking water. Being optimally hydrated is about optimizing your body fluids ratios. And electrolytes are a component of proper hydration. Element is formulated with a science-backed electrolyte ratio, which includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And with the amount of travel that I do personally and professionally, one of the ways that I stay on track is with electrolyte supplementation while traveling. And we know that in traveling, the atmosphere in planes is kept at 10 to 20% humidity and dry air dehydrates us much more quickly, pulling more moisture from our skin and breath. This means that those of us that travel with some frequency need to hydrate even more. Properly supplementing electrolytes can help to prevent dehydration headaches, support our energy needs to minimize the effects of jet lag, and decrease the risk of blood clotting on long haul flights. And Element is offering a free sample pack with any purchase. You want to go to www.drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia. That's drinklmnt.com Cynthia. My personal favorite is orange with a close second of grapefruit, but there's lots of great varieties and the free sample pack allows you to try all of the flavors out from the beauty of your own home. Well, let's touch on mold. So the mycotoxins can actually, I think mycotoxins are like really undervalued and people don't mm. look deeply enough for them because I think I have at least three or four clients right now that, you know, they had done so well in a protocol and then they plateaued and then they're like, what's going on? And I was like, we have to think about environmental toxins. And sure enough, each one of them had mold in their homes. And so mm. I just don't think there's enough focus on that as a potential toxin that can yeah. make us really sick. Yeah, no. And anything again, that kind of suppresses the immune system and mold is definitely one of those things that can just cause, you know, dysfunction in our entire system's ability to fight off infection. I think that's kind of that there are a lot of other sub reasons. And then there's everything with mast cell activation syndrome and that overlapping issue and histamine, which mold certainly contributes to as well. But I think kind of, you know, in the broad strokes, I would put that in the bucket of bacteria not killed. And, you know, there are a lot of studies with SIBO where it's like, oh, well, we can't say, you know, X, Y, or Z for sure. You know, they look at the medications that have the highest correlation with people getting SIBO. Hormone replacement therapy for Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism is up there. And then the second is any sort of immunosuppressant. Because again, you know, our body is designed to ward off a pathogen that's entering our body. And in the small intestine, there's not a whole lot of tolerance for that because again, you know, the bacteria is not supposed to be there in our large intestine where, you know, it has safe Harbor. There's a much larger mucus barrier between your immune system and the quote unquote other, the bacteria that creates more harmony. But, you know, again, 
we need these protective measures to ensure that something like SIBO doesn't happen, to ensure that food poisoning in the first place, if it really is a pathogen, doesn't happen. Because, you know, in the case of SIBO, it's not necessarily bad bacteria that's taking up residence. It can be perfectly fine bacteria. It's just, you know, kind of a location issue. Yeah. And that makes sense. One thing I want to talk more about, because there are a lot of listeners that have hypothyroidism, whether or not they have the autoimmune component. And I recently was talking to someone and I was like, oh, it's 80 to 85% of people that have hypothyroidism have Hashimoto's. And this expert said, no, it's actually way higher than that. I think it's very unusual to have uh, hypothyroidism and not have Hashimoto's. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, well, I've not had Hashimoto's. I've always been told my antibodies were negative and I've seen the lab studies, but a lot of listeners have hypothyroidism. So, you know, timeout hearing that there's a correlation between, you know, whether you're taking synthetic or non-synthetic, you know, thyroid replacement therapy to know that puts you at another layer of risk for SIBO will definitely get people like very interested in hearing more. And I know obviously this is another area of yours that, you know, as your own health journey, you kind of learn more about it. What is it specific? Is it the decreased motility in the mm. gut that is driving a lot of that? That's what I think. Yeah. Okay. It has nothing to do with the medication itself. Okay. So I don't want people to freak out about that. I think it's what the medication indicates, which is Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism. Mm. And it was something that I didn't quite understand the correlation with myself when I was first diagnosed, but essentially, you know, there's such a vicious cycle between our hormone levels and our gut health. And and they drive each other. So, I mean, that's why I think back to my Morocco experience as well (laughs) and setting the stage for Hashimoto's. But essentially, if you don't have enough of your active thyroid hormone T3, which by the way, as a side note, most people who are taking synthetic thyroid hormones are only taking T4, which then has to be converted Mm -hmm. in your liver. A lot of people, you know, again, the root causes of Hashimoto's have to do with gut and liver dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just keeping in mind that most people who are even, you know, medicated are probably not getting enough T3 or Mm. don't have high enough T3 levels that then affects not only your migrating motor complex, but also your stomach acid. So it's kind of a two, four, that low stomach acid, again, going to make you more prone to food poisoning. So it's again, the vicious cycle. And the irony is like, for me personally, it was an issue with food poisoning that potentially, you know, spurred my autoimmune disease. And then unfortunately, once that cycle started, you know, it just creates more issues for gut dysfunction and more opportunities for more food poisoning, which is why I think it's so important for people to know about that connection. And then, you know, estrogen dominance is another thing that can disrupt our ability for converting our T4 into T3. They're kind of, you know, once something goes off with your hormones, there's a lot of opportunity for it to kind of trickle down into some sort of issue with your gut, whether it's your migrating motor complex or stomach acid or some other essential piece of the puzzle. Yeah. There's so much to this to really unpack. Now people are listening. Don't worry. We're going to talk about testing that's next. So how can listeners or people that are are connected to the podcast, what is the first line? So when you're looking at testing, what do you feel is the best test to use for SIBO? Yeah. So the leading test is something called a hydrogen methane breath test, and it's a little bit involved. It's not 
you know, as easy as a stool test, mm-hmm. although some people are like stool tests are not easy and, you know, blood tests aren't going to tell you much. Endoscopy, colonoscopy are not going to tell you much. And so what happens is you kind of prepare for 24, 48 hours before the day before you have a very limited diet of basically just white rice and lean protein to ensure that kind of all the remnant fiber and whatnot has made it through your system. And then the morning of the test, you drink a synthetic sugar solution. And the hypothesis is the only thing that would be consuming the sugar solution is bacteria. So every 15, 20 minutes, depending on the lab, you breathe into a little glass vial. Back at the lab, they test all of those vials for various gas levels. And if they see a spike too early on, meaning before that sugar solution has reached your large intestine where you want to see a big spike, because again, that's where your bacteria live, then that's an indication that you may have an issue with SIBO. Well, and it's interesting to me, I guess, Genova is the test that I've used yeah. a three hour Genova test. And I've had more clients than not have to redo it because they, you know, didn't follow the instructions or they got mixed <laughs> yeah. up. And so you really do, it's like 30 minute increments in the beginning. And so people have to really like set a timer and just, you know, stay on top of it. But I think what's really important is that again, a lot of nuances with SIBO and there's a couple different kinds of SIBO. Yes. And I think that's important to touch on. And so, you know, people could be constipation dominant, diarrhea dominant, and that usually aligns itself with specific types of SIBO. But let's talk about that. Yes. So hydrogen and methane are the two main gases. There's also a third gas called hydrogen sulfide, which up until I want to say January of this past year, or maybe it was the year before, there was no official test for it. Now I used to do Genova as well, but now there's a new test called Trio that will test all three. So that's an interesting one to look into just to make sure you're, that you're covering your bases. It's so funny. These things change so quickly. You know, at the time that my book was off being printed, you know, the test came out and I was like, ah, darn. So now I try and talk about it so people know. But Essentially, depending on which of those dominant gases is your issue, and it is possible to have a mixture of several, that's going to indicate what treatment options you need to use. Because for methane SIBO, you're talking about methanogens. Those actually aren't even considered bacteria. They're archaea, different kind of organism altogether. And so kind of the regular antibiotic for SIBO doesn't necessarily work as well. So you need a second antibiotic or in the case of kind of the natural approach, these herbal antimicrobials, you need an extra agent to kind of target the methanogens. And then for hydrogen sulfide SIBO, that's kind of, you know, an issue with your sulfur pathways. So there's kind of a dual path you can take to kind of supplement or support your body through diet and clearing those pathways so that, you know, again, you don't have some sort of overgrowth issue. And then hydrogen is the main gas associated with the food poisoning or post-infectious IBS version of SIBO. And it's usually correlates with diarrhea, although people, you know, can have a mixed bag with that. And there's exceptions to kind of every rule with each of the gases, but methane tends to be more constipation, hydrogen, more diarrhea. Methane also tends to be weight gain versus Mm -hmm. weight loss because the way that the methanogens actually metabolize your food causes you to hold on to fat and energy in a way that other critters do not. And then hydrogen sulfide can have just kind of 
got really tricky symptom matrix. So you can have flatulence that kind of smells like rotten eggs. You Mm. can be really sensitive to, again, like sulfur containing foods, Epsom salt baths. If you have hydrogen sulfide, Zebo might be actually irritating to you. And it tends to just be kind of like heightened symptoms of any of the aforementioned ones that we talked about earlier. So once someone has a diagnosis, I know that a lot of what you talk about in the book, and I love that you focus on the lifestyle piece because you can take all the antibiotics and all the antimicrobials and all the biofilm breakers, but if you don't address these pieces too, you're not nearly going to be as successful. So let's kind of dive into the impact of lifestyle choices on how well we can bounce back from SIBO. Absolutely. So, you know, most people, most practitioners recommend one quote unquote kill phase or another. And that would be, you know, the two paths of the herbals or the antibiotics I mentioned, or this thing called the elemental diet, which isn't Mm. really a diet, but kind of a medical shake that allows you to kind of feed the person, but starve the bacteria. And then there's all these dietary approaches that, you know, kind of get a little bit muddied in the treatment bucket, but I personally think are more about symptom control, and then therapeutically just helping you kind of heal after SIBO. And so there are a lot of different approaches in terms of layering diet on top of your kill phase or doing diet afterwards. And it really depends on kind of what your unique situation is. I dedicate like a lot of pages in the book to helping you kind of find your own path. Cause unfortunately there is just no one recipe for everyone. Everyone has different mixes of bacteria slash critters overgrowing. Everyone has different symptoms as a result. I mean, our microbiome in our large intestine is more unique than a fingerprint. And so that kind of gives you a sense of how much any sort of overgrowth can differ from one another. So some treatments might not work for some people, some might work for others. And then again, when it comes to healing, you know, healing is so different than the treatment itself. And oftentimes, you know, these kill protocols can be very hard on the body, hard on your system and kind of require a whole other level of healing on the other end to begin with. So that's why I kind of, you know, always try and manage people's expectations with SIBO. It is a long process in terms of, you know, the damage that you're trying to address in the healing phase. As you mentioned before, some people have been dealing with SIBO without their own knowledge for years and years and years. I know a lot of the practitioners who I talked to who got into it through their own personal experiences and also some non-practitioner people who have, you know, gotten into the advocacy space like me. I mean, they think they've had SIBO since their childhood. So that gives you a sense of how long, unfortunately, it may take to, you know, truly get things back on track to heal that intestinal lining and, you know, again, to kind of heal some of the reactivity with food. Since unfortunately, you know, with SIBO, it can breed a lot of food fear since your symptoms do really come from the act of eating. It's not in your head, like you're Mm -hmm. reacting to food because your bacteria Mm -hmm. is reacting to the food. So in terms of the lifestyle changes, I actually think that addressing how you're eating is so much more important than what you're eating, especially, you know, in terms of dovetailing with the quote unquote kill phase. So, you know, some of the things like we talked about, like meal spacing, you know, it should be a no brainer for SIBO folks to 
try out. Simply chewing your food, supporting your stomach acid, especially if you're someone who knows that you have, you know, something in your medical chart like Hashimoto's that would preclude you to having low stomach acid or a stomach acid issue. I think, you know, just the timing of our meals, eating at least a few hours before bedtime. So again, once you go horizontal and you know that your digestive system slows down, you don't have food just kind of sitting and festering in your small intestine that mm-hmm. hasn't made it all the way through yet. Because if you're eating, you know, dinner at nine o'clock and going to bed at 10 o'clock, it's just physically mm-hmm. impossible to have it made its way all the way to the large intestine at that point. And yeah, I think for women too, thinking about what you're wearing, how tight your pants are, Mm -hmm. I think it's an unappreciated structural impediment for our digestive system, maybe not as intense as an adhesion, wouldn't put it under, you know, the actual list of root causes. But I do think that it's something to think about, especially for, you know, the fashion ladies out there wearing the really tight, high-waisted Spanx or skinny jeans. You know, if you're doing that night after night and it does make a difference, I've learned as much just from personal experience, trying to think of other lifestyle things. I mean, of course, stress, sleep, hydration, Mm -hmm. all of these things factor in. In fact, I get messages all the time from people who are saying, you know, what if I can't find my root cause? Like I can't find my root cause. And I'm like, well, stress is a root cause. Like, are you a person who doesn't (laughs) experience stress? I think, you know, for me personally, my SIBO diagnosis, I can't think of any other acute experience that would have caused me to develop SIBO when I did than stress. I mean, I obviously have a lot of risk factors, but I've had those risk factors for a decade. So, mm-hmm. and I didn't have, you know, the IBS issues that I had with SIBO for that decade. They definitely came out of nowhere and I took notice and got diagnosed. But, you know, it was actually the year after sorry, the year that my last book, The Wellness Project came out. So I was on an intense book tour. I was, you know, not as much as I had all these habits, all these tools in my back pocket, you know, I wasn't, you know, truly sticking with my routine that I knew (laughs) allowed me to live my best life. So that coupled with the added stress, you know, was enough to put me over the edge. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, 
me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. Well, I think it's also being very human. I mean, the past 15, 16 months, there's no one listening that hasn't had more stress in Mm -hmm. their life than they had before. And, And I think a lot of people, you know, we all have different coping mechanisms, Some are more maladaptive than others. And I think a lot of people ate to deal with the stress. Yeah. I tend to be a, like an exerciser and not that I was over exercising, but that was like the only thing I felt like I could control. But I think for a lot of people, you know, the food piece is really a Mm -hmm. huge contributor. The stress is not acknowledged enough. And obviously, you know, if most of us are sympathetic dominant, most of us, our bodies are in chronic fight or flight. And so really finding strategies that can tap into that rest and repose side. Like I'm a huge advocate of, you know, meditation, but if you don't like that, I mean, if you like gadgets, you know, I'm a gadget person. I'm, I love the Apollo neuro. And that's definitely been something that I can wear during the day and I don't have to stop to meditate, but I can program the Apollo neuro. And it, it was initially designed for PTSD victims mm. And they extrapolated the data and it's based on neuroscience. And so it's like tapping, but you wear, Mm. I wear it on my ankle during the day. So it looks like a home monitoring device. My (laughs) kids are always embarrassed. They're like, we don't want anyone thinking you've escaped. (laughs) And so I wear it during the day, but I wear it during the day and I put it on a more stimulatory setting. And then I wear it when I go to bed and there's no EMFs. It's very benign. Mm. And so that has been very helpful, but I think each one of us have to acknowledge that we all need to work harder at stress. There's probably very few of us that, you know, are in ideal circumstances because we're, you know, dealing with unprecedented times and not even getting political, just saying it's unprecedented times that have contributed to additional stress. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, for my book, I really tried to just, you know, curate all of the information that we have about SIBO. 
But I do think that, you know, from talking to people, from talking to practitioners, there is something to be said for if you can identify your root causes, just tackling those first. If you're wary of, you know, getting on the merry-go-round of antibiotics or herbals, you know, try something that's less invasive. Try tackling it from the emotional side first. There's hypnotherapy for IBS that has, you know, incredible data associated with it. We have to assume, and there has been some data that's come out since I published the book about SIBO and hypnotherapy specifically. But again, that should just tell you a little bit of what you need to know about how powerful our mind-gut connection is and how much improvement you can see without, you know, even quote unquote, eradicating through pills, you know, the overgrowth itself. Yeah. And I think it's really important that it's slow and steady wins. And, you know, I usually will use the GI map with clients. Mm. And so there's a typical pattern I'll see on the GI map, which is a DNA based stool test. And there's a pattern that kind of gives me some insights that someone might be headed in that direction, or they probably Mm. have H. pylori. What I was always taught was where H. pylori hides, parasites and SIBO reside. So if I Mm. see H. pylori and parasites and some other nuances on that test, the clinical suspicion is always high, but I always tell people, I'm like, listen, I'm going to tell you what I think, but we have to address all these other things. So Mm. one important thing that I was taught was that, you know, digestion goes in a North to South process. And so you have to address the H. pylori before you address the parasites, Mm. before you even think about addressing the SIBO, if you, even if you suspect it, so it's never typically not the first test I will look at, like you mentioned, you know, food sensitivity, Mm. stress management, sleep quality, hydration, all things that people think are pretty small, but they do have a huge impact. So we kind of touched on antibiotic therapy, antimicrobials, the elemental diet, which I've had a couple of friends who've actually done it. And they said it wasn't as bad as they thought it would be, which is, but I think (laughs) it's the fastest way to have the greatest impact on SIBO, but for a lot of people, they're freaked out about drinking shakes for two weeks. I was one of those people for sure. Yeah. (laughs) How bad was it? Oh, I didn't do it. I didn't didn't? do it. Yeah. I was like, I'm a chef and food writer. I was like, I can't not eat food. Yeah. (laughs) No, that would be hard. That would be hard for anyone. So let's say someone has selected one of those modalities. Let's say they're doing antimicrobials. And there's something called a Herxheimer reaction. And for anyone that's listening, yeah. this is a reaction that, you know, clinicians and people will look out for, but, you know, it can be mitigated by a particular type of bacteria, but I'd love for you to touch on that because I think sometimes people will say, oh, well, I tried to get treated for X and it didn't work. And really yeah. what they're referring to is they developed a detox reaction or a reaction yeah. to the die off. So let's touch on that. Yeah. I get messages from people all the time who are, you know, have been on, the herbals or the ambiotics for a week or two and are saying, I feel worse. And it's not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Again, like these are even the herbs themselves, like are not benign. They're super intense and broad spectrum. And what can happen is when the bacteria are getting, are being killed, they release a toxin that Mm -hmm. is really more harmful to the system than the bacteria themselves were. I mean, it is truly toxic. And so it's just something to keep in mind. It usually manifests as more of like a flu-like reaction rather than just, you know, an increase of maybe your GI symptoms, though that could certainly be part of it too. So it's something to keep in mind and talk to your practitioner about. A lot of people recommend binders like Mm -hmm. activated charcoal or bentonite clay just to kind of, again, in between your doses of herbals or antibiotics to kind of lessen the reactivity of that toxin Mm -hmm. and usher it out. 
Yeah. I think that's important. Also the biofilm disruptor. So Mm. something that's kind of gross, but it's even goes down to thinking about like, for example, when we go to the dentist, the dentist, you know, clears plaque off our team, our teeth, that is a biofilm. And so all of these bacteria, fungi, et cetera, have biofilms. They're trying to ensure that they survive. They don't want to die. And so, you know, biofilms are certainly a really important part to all of this. Do you use a lot of, or were you, you know, when you've been interviewing a lot of these SIBO experts and you mentioned one of my favorites, PHGG, are a lot of the SIBO experts, are they using this in their protocols? I would imagine they probably are. Yeah. And there are, you know, some natural biofilm busters mm-hmm. too, apple cider vinegar, coconut mm-hmm. oil, but often you do need something a little extra. Monolaurin, mm-hmm. I think also works as a biofilm buster, but there are various complexes and a few that are kind of popular in the SIBO community. I'm blanking on their exact names and labs, but I do have them on my website. If you're curious in the shop section, you can look through all of the supplements for SIBO. There's also, you know, a very robust medicine cabinet chart, which mm-hmm. I loved creating in the book. That'll kind of give you a guide to all the possibilities for these mm-hmm. various categories. But yeah, I think it's something that's worth adding. Absolutely. And so PHGG is this prebiotic fiber. And so Mm -hmm. obviously we want to get food-based sources when we're speaking in generalities, but this is something that, you know, prebiotics are food for the probiotics in our gut. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of like fertilizer and it's a beneficial fertilizer. Don't think Mm -hmm. of it as a non-beneficial thing. Now I had about five questions that I wanted to review with you. I was trying to be all encompassing from the milieu of questions I received And so one woman asked, what's your favorite suggestion for pain, gas, or bloating with SIBO? Is there, are there particular therapies that you have found based on the research that are most efficacious, most effective? Because this woman in particular said that is her biggest issue is that even though she's been getting treated properly and she's said, I have ongoing discussions with my healthcare provider. So she's doing all the right things, but she said it hasn't gotten a lot better. What would you suggest for each one of those symptom prongs? There are different recommendations, but I probably go with something called Iberogas, which is an herbal complex. That's like specifically Mm -hmm. for gas, bloating, nausea. It's kind of, you know, an all purpose (laughs) formula that's had, you know, a lot of success. So they're little drops and you can take them before meals and it can be helpful for diarrhea and constipation and bloating, actually activated charcoal does have some good data associated with it. Peppermint is always great for kind of, you know, a panacea of digestive things as is ginger. So if you're looking for natural things to incorporate, especially nausea, you know, ginger chews, ginger tea, Mm -hmm. peppermint that's either encapsulated to actually get to the gut, or you can have tea as well can be helpful. But yeah, there's some kind of, you know, mega formulas like the Obiro gas. There's another one that's great for methane symptoms called Entrontil. I might not even be saying it correctly, but again, it's another kind of herbal formula that was designed actually off the back of research and trying to reduce methane output in cattle. So Yeah, it is specifically for the methane type, but can help with the gas associated with that tremendously and, you know, some of the constipation. Oh, goodness. What are the strategies that you use while you travel? Now, we're going to think pre-COVID, 
and coming out of the pandemic? What are your best strategies? What do you take with you? What do you think is important to have when you're traveling? So I actually got back from my first trip in a year and a half (laughs) yesterday. It was very exciting. It was only four days, but I had to think about it again. I'm like, oh my God, my travel kit, (laughs) Mm -hmm. my gut travel kit. Okay. So I always include digestive enzymes, which help, you know, get the stomach acid flowing. If you have one, especially that has like pepsin HCL built in, if you don't like digestive enzymes, you can always just do a pepsin or HCL supplement. But I think that's really important again, you know, to just make sure that our stomach acid, our first barrier of protection is running on all cylinders. I always pack charcoal with me in case of some sort of adverse reaction so that I can just, you know, cut it off right, you know, after I eat something. And, you know, if you have a sensitive stomach and you're traveling somewhere where, you know, you know that you're not going to be terribly familiar with the cuisine, I just think even if it's not actual food poisoning, you know, the possibility for some sort of indigestion or IBS Mm -hmm. experience is high. So pack that. And then, yeah, I take monolaurin. I like monolaurin a lot. It's antiviral and antibacterial. It's also a biofilm buster. It's got a lot of different efficacies. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a good kind of all-purpose thing to take with you just again to kind of ward off anything that you might come into contact with. And then, yeah, I would just recommend kind of taking your usual supplements. For me, vitamin D is really big. It's great for gut health and great for healing leaky gut. Just again, kind of tackles a lot of different elements. It's also so important for thyroid health. So I always pack that and I'm trying to think what else was in my bundle. And then, yeah, I just always take some sort of multivitamin just again to cover your bases. No. And I love that. I'm always a fan of bringing pinders when I go out, there's (laughs) even a, like a gluten dairy arrest that I'll take with me if I'm eating in a restaurant because I'm gluten and dairy free. And inevitably I'm sure I'm consuming those things, even though I specify otherwise. I know I got this question multiple times. A lot of people who are concerned about SIBO think they have SIBO and the issue of FODMAP. So, Mm. you know, navigating that. And and it's been my experience and you may feel differently or feel the same, but bio-individuality really rules. Like if I don't necessarily say to everyone, you have to be in a low FODMAP diet. It's really what works best for each individual person. Yeah. So yeah, the low FODMAP diet is very effective at reducing symptoms because it removes a lot of prebiotic fibers that tend to be your bacteria's favorite foods, or if not their favorite foods, the ones that produce the most gas. But again, on the other side of the coin is they are the most important Mm -hmm. fibers to feed, you know, the overall health of the bacteria in your large intestine. So there's data that says people who go on the low FODMAP diet and stay on it for too long for months on end are really damaging that foundation irrevocably. And I think it's often the hardest thing for people because there are a lot of people who are just blanketly kind of recommending the prescription of the low FODMAP diet. Even, you know, a lot of conventional GIs who maybe aren't savvy on SIBO yet have read the data in terms of the low FODMAP diet and IBS, and will just recommend that without any sort of information on how to cut up come off of it, or even any acknowledgement that you would come off of it. But in reality, it is a therapeutic diet. So it's something that you're going to want to try for like 
a month or two and then reintroduce because the reintroduction for any therapeutic diet is how you actually get information. Mm. And the low FODMAP diet is a really complicated, but also really interesting one because it's kind of quantity specific. So the acronym stands for various carbohydrates and it's really hard to generalize. Like, you know, there are certain categories that have fruits, but then also grains, but then also, you know, different types of things in them includes lactose, includes, you know, various types of sugars. And essentially you want to just reintroduce and see which categories tend to, you know, disrupt your system the most, because most people are not sensitive to every single one. And then most people, you know, can do smaller quantities of their problem ingredients and kind of work their way back up. And then also, you know, once you kind of get rid of the overgrowth, oftentimes like you can have an easier time with some of these ingredients. So I think, you know, there are different approaches in terms of, you know, whether you overlap that with treatment or not. I think it, again, really depends on how severe your symptoms are. Of course, if your symptoms are super severe, you know, your gut's not gonna be able to heal. You're probably going to have worse die off if, you know, you're letting that go unchecked. So in which case, you know, having some sort of intense band-aid approach like that diet to bring things down is great, but always keep in mind the fact that, you know, Point B is making sure that the health of our overall gut and especially our large intestine is something that we're supporting. Getting there, especially with SIBO as the starting point, can be really difficult because, you know, they're basically opposites and it can be a difficult gap to bridge. But you have to always strive for that diversity and for, you know, incorporating those important fibers as the end goal. Oh, slow and steady wins. Yep. How about one person asks, how long to try herbals before considering antibiotics or an elemental diet? Again, I know this is bioindividuality, but as a general theme, what should be the time frame that they give the antimicrobials before considering other options? Yeah. So again, I'm not a practitioner myself, but from talking to others and kind of how they approach, you know, choosing a treatment, it really comes down to, you know, how you're responding as an individual. So that's where the testing comes in, you know, seeing how far you are able to reduce your gas levels with a course of herbals. If there was some improvement, you know, maybe your doctor will say, okay, let's try another round of them to bring them down another chunk because each of these treatments kind of only has you know, a certain capacity to reduce your gas numbers. The elemental diet has the largest capacity, which is why people, as you said, you know, because it's quick and has, you know, the most dramatic possibility for effectiveness. That's why people look towards it. But, you know, if it didn't move the needle, that's when it's time to try something else. You wouldn't want to try it again if it didn't make any difference. I mean, these things are supposed to work. So if it didn't work for you, that's, you know, time to try another type of treatment. Absolutely. And lastly, what are your favorite ways to heal and seal the gut? Oh, okay. Well, yes. Leaky gut tactics. I'm huge on, you know, using diet as the main tool, doing a lot of broths. I think, you know, especially for those who have kind of weaned themselves onto a more limited diet on SIBO, just to reduce the symptoms, trying to reintroduce things in pureed form can be really helpful. Anything that's cooked and of course broken down in any way prior to it reaching your gut just means less work that your entire digestive system is going to have to do. And, you know, not all of us are chewing. (laughs) 
<laughs> as well as we could be. So if that's you, you know, no shame, but, you know, just think about ways that you can help your system because it reaches your intestines. There's no teeth. So I have a lot of really beautiful therapeutic soups in the book, kind of a pureed green soup, a pureed orange soup any sort of, you know, collagen that you get from bone broth or, you know, added via supplementation, if that's your thing, unless you have histamine issues, in which case you have to be careful of that. But yeah, again, <laughs> bioindividuality, fresh ginger, fresh lemon juice, drinking kind of the brine of sauerkraut. So fermented mm -hmm. cabbage juice is great. Cabbage actually has the highest level of L-glutamine of a natural food. And L-glutamine is kind of, you know, the powerhouse amino acid for repairing your intestinal lining. Vitamin D also very important. Turmeric also incredible. So just getting all of these things in through diet as much as possible. I have a ton of turmeric in the recipes in the book and also a ton of fresh ginger. So yeah, those would be, I'm sure I'm forgetting something. I love that you very all encompassing and certainly two years out from my long hospitalization. It has been a long process to heal that gut. I was on a yeah. modified carnivore diet for about nine months because wow. when I came out, I couldn't tolerate anything else. Oh. I was never so happy as when I was able to eat raw vegetables again. I know um, that's the goal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so now I feel like it's going to take, I mean, I'm still healing, but you know, I have multiple different kinds of fermented cabbage in my kitchen, mm. in my refrigerator. And my kids laugh because they see like the container stays, seems to last forever. I'm like, well, two forkfuls is, you know, as much as I need with a meal. And I mean, they yeah. think I'm bananas, but yeah. And the to... juice too. You just take a little swig yeah. throughout the day. Mm. Well, anyway, it has been a pleasure. I want to be really respectful of your time. Share with the listeners how to connect with you, how to purchase your book, which is really well done. SIBO made simple. I actually have it sitting on my floor because my next foray is to look for a recipe to create this week before we leave for Yay. Montana. Yeah. Well, you can find me on my website, which is feedmephoebe.com. I have tons of recipe archives in there with free dishes that are all gluten-free, mostly dairy-free, anti-inflammatory. And then there's a lot of low FODMAP content on there too. Um, you can also find my podcast there, SIBO Made Simple. And then for the book, SIBO Made Simple, you can just go to sibomadesimple.com. And if you're curious about Hashimoto's and my last book, you can go to thewellnessproject.com. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure to connect with you. I know this will be a, an incredibly popular episode based on the feedback that I got prior to us recording. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. 